Am I on? There I am. Thank you. Very excited. I get. I love preaching, so thank you for letting me preach every time I get a chance to. Uh, it's because my parents are in Ireland, but I know they're listening, so mom and dad, everything's fine over here. Caitlin and Josh are fine. Um, the dogs are fine. We bought some dogs. Uh, the parrots are getting along with the dogs really well, though. We bought some parrots. Uh, don't worry, we didn't use your money, though. We, we're just renting out the basement to some people to pay for the dogs and the parrots. But everyone's getting along great, Mom and Dad. So don't worry, everything's fine. Uh, you can just listen to the rest of the sermon in peace. It's a joke, I'm kidding. They don't know. Okay. Uh, but I'm here to preach, not do stand-up comedy. So I'm going to pray first. Uh, Spirit, be with us, teach us through your word, and uh, through what I've prepared. Growth comes through you, showing us the sun, not by clever preaching or by clever listeners, but by you moving. So we ask, uh, through the blood of Jesus, that you would come. Amen. Okay, so I want to talk about the doctrine of the image of God, which is about what it means to be a human. What does it mean to be a human? And I had kind of like a long argument that I was going to present in the beginning about why this is really important for Christians to understand and why we really need to get this. But then I realized that argument was taking up like half the sermon time and I'm just in charge. So I get to say we're going to talk about it. But we're going to be talking about what it means to be a human. I'm going to present kind of the end of the argument. What, what, why does it matter? Why do we have to care about this? Uh, because... Is this, gonna, is this on? Do I point it back there? There we go. Why does it matter? This is, the suspense is very exciting. <laughs> this is very exciting. The answer is because... Uh, to be a self-conscious Christian is the idea. A self-conscious Christian is someone who purposefully thinks about every area of life as it relates to God. There it is. So we don't want to be compartmentalizing life. This part has to do with God, and this part is my part. I don't have to let God into this part. A self-conscious Christian is someone who purposefully thinks about everything as it has to do with God. And we want to be that kind of a person. So... Uh, the next slide is a quote from a theologian, which is very exciting, but we'll get to it. Uh, the quote is from Cornelius Van Til. He's a theologian who's influenced me a lot. And he said that we need to think of everything as it pertains to God, because God is the only thing that matters. So we need to understand everything in relation to the only thing that matters. Uh, and then there's another quote I had up by a uh, four-year-old girl. Clementine, she's very cute, uh, and she said, God made everything. He made you and me and my mommy and January and all the trees and Frozen. I think she's talking about the movie she made Frozen. There's the Van Til quote. And crackers. So uh, Clementine, the other theologian that I'm quoting, is a self-conscious Christian. Is it all good? There it is. God made everything. He made you and me and my mommy in January and all the trees and frozen and all the crackers. So, you know what I'm getting at? We need to be people who think about everything, like Van Til and like Clementine. We need to think about everything in light of God, what his word has to say about it, especially and in including and foundationally what it means to be a human. 
We need to purposefully, intentionally think about humanness in light of God's word, just like our theologians have said. Okay? So that's why this matters. Uh, To do this, I'm going to read the foundational text. Where does God tell us what it means to be a human in the scripture? So turn in your Bibles to page 1. Page 1. Genesis 1, 26 through 31 is the text we're going to read. And I want to make a point first before we read the text. Uh, There's a lot of different ways Christians read Genesis, a lot of different hermeneutics you can bring to the text. However you read Genesis, the points I'm making are theological. And so I don't, I'm not saying that debate doesn't matter. I'm just saying don't get hung up on that. We can read Genesis differently and still get the points I'm making. That's a different conversation. So just, you can listen to the sermon even if you might read Genesis differently than I would. But here's the passage, which is about what it means to be a human. What it means to be a human. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with its seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And the next verse uh, that I want to read is Genesis 2-7. So in chapter 2, we get more details about God's creation of humanity. So chapter 2, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, And the man became a living creature. So that's the text giving us the foundation of what it means to be a human. That's the text we're going to be working from. And here's the outline of the sermon. So here's the table of contents. There are three specific ideas of what it means to be the image of God. To be the image of God contains three specific ideas. We're going to go over each of those. And then over how this doctrine relates to the gospel. So to explain a doctrine without getting to the cross is, in a way, to not explain that doctrine. We have to understand everything as it relates to the gospel. So the idea of the image of God contains three ideas, and then we're going to talk about how this relates to the cross. Everyone with me? We're good? Okay. Here we go. Number one, the first idea contained in the image of God. The first thing that it is talking about has to do with our Substance. We are substantively distinct because we are in the image of God. What we are in our essence, just by virtue of being born, just by virtue of being human, is the image of God. And so uh, this is a note about grammar. Sometimes in English, we speak this way. We say that we have the image of God. And that's not wrong. But I think a more precise way to speak would be to say that we are the image of God. 
It's not that we are something that has his image. We are his image in our substance. We are his image regardless of skin color or nationality or when you were born, male or female, young or old, how rich you are, how smart you are, how strong you are. No matter how badly you've sinned, by virtue of being born, regardless of disabilities or illness, you are the image of God. Point number one about substance. Another point that is to be made is that uh, we have souls. We are not simply material. I'm not, I was also going to argue for that for a long time, but if you're at church, I bet you already believe that. You already believe we have souls. So the first idea in the image of God is to say that our substance, just by virtue of being, is the image of God. Now, before I can kind of apply this, before I can give this more umph, before I can make this matter more, um, I want to explain more about what it meant to be the image of God in the Old Testament. So in the ancient Near East, the concept of the image of God was very prevalent. So here's a picture of an image of God. This is in Bethsaida. I've been there. It's in northern Israel. This is the gate. So this is the front gates to the city. And you see this thing? That is an image of the god Baal. Very scary. Don't touch it. Its substance is meant to image forth the god Baal. So uh, in the Hebrew, and I'm not going to pretend I'm a Hebrew scholar. I've taken rudimentary undergraduate Hebrew. But one of those things that I've learned is the concept of selim. A selim is the image. So we are the selim of God. An idol is a selim of Baal. The idea of a statue or an idol or an image, we are the selim of God. Idols are selims of false gods. Remember in Daniel, when Nebuchadnezzar made a big statue of himself? That was a selim of King Nebuchadnezzar. On Mount Sinai, God says, don't make any images of me. Don't make any selims of me. Because we are the selims of God. We can't, so not only can we not worship the stones, we're not even allowed to make pictures of God. We're not allowed to make images of God because we are the selim of God. We are the images of God. So that's point number one. Another thing to point out is we do this today. Having a selim representing something else is not just something they did back then. America has a giant selim that you have to pass by to get into America. I paid $17 to see it. Does anyone know what the American Selim is? Statue of Liberty. It's a giant statue in the image of liberty, right? It's, and so uh, the idea of this makes sense. But so here's the next step we have to get before we can apply this is in the Old Testament, if you wanted to say, I refuse to worship Baal, I refuse to worship King Nebuchadnezzar, rather than just asserting that, you would actually tear down the idol. Right? To say, I refuse to pay homage to Baal, you tear down the image of Baal. So, righteous kings in the Old Testament tore down the images of the Asheroth and the false gods. And in Daniel, in the vision, remember the rock, which is the kingdom of God, smashes the, the statue. That's not just saying the statue broke. You need to build a new statue. That's that the kingdom of God refuses to venerate the kingdoms of man. So a selim represents something, and the way of saying that you refuse to venerate that thing is by destroying the selim. That's the logic. So then, here's how it matters. Here's, here's the big point. 
If you care about God, if you really believe he is all valuable and all praiseworthy and all honor and all glory and all praise should be ascribed to him, if we really believe that about God and you really believe that everyone around you is the image of God, is not just having the image, but in their substance is a selim of God, then you would never sin against another human. Do you get the logic of righteousness there? To sin against another human is to tear down an image of God. Your every sin. So D.A. Carson, he's a theologian who's very important. D.A. Carson says, in sin, when one creature sins against another creature, the number one offended party is always God. Because when I sin against you, I'm saying I don't care enough about God to respect you in your image. Tearing down another person. And so in, in Psalm 51, remember after David has been caught in his sin, he's murdered someone, he's committed adultery. David says, against you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. Well, I think Uriah would probably disagree with that. David killed someone. What do you mean you've only sinned against God? Well, when you sin, you are offending the other person. But what you're doing is fundamentally saying, I don't care about God in whose image that person has been made. You understand the logic here? So I'm going to do one more application. I want to bring it down even lower before we move on to the second point, which is going over specific commands in the Bible and showing how when you break these commands, what you're ultimately doing is dishonoring God. So honor your father and mother. God has put two persons in most situations over you. For most people on the planet, they have two persons over them. And when you refuse to honor your father and mother from your heart, you're not just sinning against them. You're saying, I refuse to venerate you, God. The refusing to honor your father and mother is an affront to God. Don't murder. Obviously, when you kill someone, you are tearing down the image of God. But Jesus says, don't even be unjustly angry. Don't hold anger in your heart. Because do you, you see the logic here? When you're angry against someone in, in your heart, when you are thinking mean thoughts about them, when you're feeling angrily towards them, God sees that. And what you're doing is you're refusing to respect the image of God in their substance. So all the commands have to do ultimately with God. And if, you, if you're praising him and honoring him and loving him, then you're not going to think angry thoughts about your neighbor. You're not going to hate your neighbor. Don't lust or commit adultery. If you commit adultery, well, first of all, you're, you're dishonoring the person in the image of God who you made a covenant with. You're dishonoring them. But when you lust, you're taking someone who is made in the image of God and reducing them to a sexual object. You're not treating them as the selim of God, as an image of God. You're treating them as a thing. Lust is refusing to see the glory of God in people. You see that? You know, I don't have to do this for every verse in the Bible. You get the logic here? Don't steal. You're taking something from someone who's the image of God. Don't lie. Don't covet. When you, when you treat objects as more important than humans, when, you treat, when you're greedy and you treat money as more important than humans, what you're doing is saying money is more important than God because humans are the selim of God. Don't be slothful or be a drunkard or be lazy. So you can sin against yourself by not treating yourself like the image of God. You see, drunkenness and, and getting, doing drugs and being lazy and being slothful is refusing to treat yourself like a selim of God. And you're refusing to give honor to God. So does anyone get, 
this is a big point. To say that we are substantively, by virtue of existing the image of God, that is the foundation of righteousness. And if we really believed it, then you would never sin. Now, before we move on, I want to actually stop and pray because that's, that's just law. I'm just preaching, this is what you have to do. And law is very tricky because if you are in Christ, if you are saved by grace, then I want this to be helpful to you to grow in righteousness. What you should do is take stock of your life. Where in your life are you not fulfilling the command of God? Think about it this way, and this is to help you grow in righteousness. If you're out of Christ, though, this is the perfect law you have to keep. So I want to pray that the Spirit applies this to our hearts appropriately. Spirit, you have given us in your word the law. And some of us in Christ use the law as a wonderful tool to grow in righteousness. And others of us recognize that the law is our perfect standard by which we will be judged if we are out of Christ. And so I pray that, Lord, you will send the Spirit to convict those who need conviction and use this as a tool to help those who need to be helped. Apply the law appropriately. Sermons can't do that. The Spirit does that. Amen. Okay, so hopefully this is helpful if you're in Christ. The second point. So that's the first idea of what it means to be the Selim of God, to be the image of God. Here's the second point. This is the second idea enclosed in being in the image of God. Relationality. God has eternally existed in a triune relationship. God in and of himself is relational. He doesn't exist and then happens to be relational. God, without creation, by himself, is in relationship. So if we are the image of God, to be human is to be relational. It's not that you exist and then you happen to be in relationship. To be human is to be relational. And so in the text of Genesis, you can kind of see this, right? God says, let us make man in our image. There's a plurality there. God makes one Adam. He makes one humanity. But in humanity, there's there's man and woman. There's plurality in unity. And the two are to come together and produce a third person, to spirate a third person. Do you get that? There's there's kind of tri-personality in the one in Genesis 1. So there's a lot of debate about how far you can push that analogy. And uh, I don't know. But everyone would agree that there's some trinity in Genesis 1. There's diversity and unity there. So God is relational by virtue of his existence. He's created us to be relational. Genesis 1 is relational. Additionally, God has entered into relationship with humanity. Christianity is different than every other religion. In every other religion, God is far off. In Christianity, God has become man. He enters into, he is Emmanuel, God with us. God is a Jewish man now. The second person of the Trinity is going to have brown eyes for eternity. God is a man now and the spirit is in you. If you are a Christian, the spirit of God has taken up residence in your soul. So God is intensely relational within himself and intensely relational in his plan of redemption. This is different than everything else on the planet. There's nothing else that can say reality is fundamentally relational. Our souls cry out for that. We want to be people of relationship, but only Christianity can actually offer it. So God is fundamentally relational in his existence and in his plan of redemption. These are two books, very good books. 
Uh, they're not Christian books. There's The Count of Monte Cristo and A Tale of Two Cities. And both of these books have something in common, which is that both of these books have a character. They're not related, but they both have a character who has to be in solitary confinement for a long time, for years and years by himself. And both of these authors, brilliant literature characters, or, or figures in history, Dickens and Dumas, um, they, do, they try to describe what it's like to exist without relationships. Chapters of trying to explain what it is like to be outside of relationship. And both of them come to the conclusion that when you're in solitary confinement, you become something less than human. Your humanity is stripped away. Do you get that? That to not be human, or not to, to not be in relationship is to lose part of your humanity. Hell, one of the reasons hell is so horrible is that you are utterly alone. If you don't want God, that's fine, but you don't get relationships either because to be with God is to be relational. I would rather be in the flames with Jesus than walking around on streets of gold by myself. To be relational is heaven. To be alone is hell. So I'm just putting this up because they, it's great examples of describing losing your humanity. Okay, but these two books, another set of books, these are Christian books, Life Together by Bonhoeffer and True Spirituality by Schaefer. Both of these books talk about what true relationality is to look like in the church. So once you get saved, you are immediately in relationship with God. Additionally, once you get saved, you are immediately in relationship with the church, with members of Christ's body. Bonhoeffer in his book says, Christ's death has not only put me in right relationship with God, but also with my brother. A Christian who says, I'm saved, I just don't have a relationship with God, isn't a Christian. To say, I'm in Christ's body, I'm part of Christ's body, I just don't know anyone in Christ's body, that's not, that doesn't make any sense. To be a Christian is to be relational. Your humanity is restored. It's, to be a relational Christian isn't something you develop after being very sanctified. It's immediate, just as being in right relationship with God is immediate. I'm not saying it doesn't take time to develop relationships. Of course it takes time. I'm not saying it doesn't take time to, to get to know people. I'm saying the, the desire to be relational is immediate for the Christian. Because to be human, to be truly human in Christ is to be relational. Do you get the logic there? When you're, to be human is to be relational. To be in Christ is to be a restored human. So to be in Christ is to be immediately relational. And so I want to read another passage. Uh, but before I, so I'm going, to, I'm going to put it on the ground again. That's the like concept of relationality. I want, to, I want to give it teeth now. I want to put it on the ground. But before I read the passage, I want to set it up. It's Romans 12. I'm going to read some of Romans 12. But where does Romans 12 fit first? Uh, remember, Romans 12 comes after Romans 1 through 11. I go to Bible college. Romans 1 through 11, remember, is Paul's systematic presentation of the gospel. It's his deep theological structuring of everyone's a sinner, but Christ has paid a penalty for us and given us his life. You get this by faith alone. Faith produces works. Works aren't the foundation of justification. 
But the Christian life is still fighting the flesh. The benefits of justification are adoption, sanctification, and glorification. If you're in Christ, you've been predestined to be in Christ. What about Israel? How do you read the Old Testament? He answers all of, that's his flow. So then, chapters 12 through the end, he's immediately talking about what now? If you are in Christ, if you're in the gospel of 1 through 11, what do you do immediately? And his immediate answer is relationality. In the church, being relational. It's not something you grow into after being sanctified for and being discipled for many years. His immediate application, what now? You're in the gospel of chapters 1 through 11, is relationality. So I'm going to read just... A couple verses. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But I want you to think about how it is that you can grow in these areas that Paul says are the immediate application of the gospel. So Paul says, if you're in the gospel, this is the immediate application, being relational. So I'm going to read this. Think about how you can grow in this. Not your neighbor. I'm sure we can all think of people who can grow in this. You need to think about yourself. Okay. I'm going to read the passage. Romans 12, 14 through 18. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. When people sing in harmony, that's beautiful. That's how we should live. We should live like a harmony. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. No one's better than anyone else in the body of Christ. Never be wise in your own sight. Oh, but... I have a theology degree. I'm wa- No, you're not. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Don't just not be bad, but actively do what is honorable. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, live peaceably with everyone. That must be for the very sanctified Christian. That's the immediate application. So again, this is law. I'm getting to the gospel, but I want to pray that we apply this appropriately. So I'm going to pause and pray again. Spirit, you have told us what it means to be a Christian. You've told us that it means to be relational. You've given us the law of being relational, self-giving, loving creatures, which is what you are in the Trinity. So I pray that for those of us in Christ, we use this as a tool to grow in righteousness. This is something to be positive. But for those outside of Christ, this is the perfect standard that we must keep. So apply this to hearts appropriately, Lord, through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, last point before we get to the gospel. How much time do we have? Oh, we've got so much time. I'm going to add another point just for fun. Okay, last point. What does it mean to be the image of God? To be the Selim of God has to do with your substance. It has to do with your relationality. Now it has to do with your function. It has to do with your functionality. The way you actually do things is the image of God. The, what you are is the image of God. Relationships are the image of God. And what you do, what you function, your function is the image of God. Okay? So, uh, I'm going to get it from the text first before we put it on the ground. From the text, the immediate way in which Adam and Eve were to image forth God was to garden, right? So God said, we're going to make man and woman in our image. In the image of God, he created them. Okay, how are they going to do it? They're they're probably going to do something really amazing to glorify God. How are they going to image forth God? Garden. You, You image forth God by being a farmer, 
by getting your like physical dirt under your fingernails. God had them work to be the image of God. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Adam and Eve imaged forth God by being, by working, by doing something to the glory of God. Another scriptural point to make um, is that Israel was to image forth God by working for six days and resting on the seventh. So remember, in Exodus chapter 19, God says to Israel, you are going to image me forth to the nations. When the nations want to know what God is like, they're going to look at the image of Israel. Israel is to image forth God. They're the son, which is a type of Christ, who is the true image of God. But Israel is to image forth God. And then in chapter 20, what does God say? How are you going to image me forth? By working for six days and on the seventh, resting. So, for, so here's the question. Uh, when was Israel imaging forth God better? By working on the six days or by resting? Well, obviously, the answer is both. You image, they imaged forth God by working and be doing their jobs and being butchers and bakers and candlestick makers, by being poets and mechanics, by thinking, by being farmers. They imaged forth God by working. And then on the seventh, they rested, specifically glorifying God. And so that's why I actually I have a picture of Chicago up there. Because you image forth God by, being, by working, by being Israel, by by doing your job to the glory of God. By delivering pizza. That's my job. Delivering pizza to the glory of God. Uh, by, what do you do? You te- by going to Top Golf to the glory of God. What is Josh? By working at Homestead to the glory of God. You work to the glory of God. You, you make art to the glory of God. You do things. You functionally image forth God. And then, here's the final scriptural support. The picture of the new heavens and the new earth. So, remember, how does the Bible end? A new heavens and a new earth, a physical reality with dirt and hair and and people and actual physical things and food. And what are the images, what are the analogies that God gives us of this place? He gives us two analogies. One is of the garden. There's 12 trees and there's a river. So the, the, uh, the image God wants us to get of the new heavens and the new earth is it's like the garden where you worked to the glory of God. And what's the other analogy God gives? It's the new Jerusalem. It's the new Israel. It's a new version of that thing. So the images God gives us of the new heavens and the new earth are the two places where you are supposed to work to the glory of God. Here's some quotes from theologians to prove my point. I'm not just making this up. I don't think you think that, but just so you know. (laughs) Randy Elkhorn, he wrote a book called Heaven. He says, we are told we will serve Christ on the new earth Working for his glory, Revelation 22.3. We know what it means to work and to want to work. You will want to image forth God through your job and through art and whatever you do. We know what it means to want to work to the glory of God. John Piper, it would not be a sermon if we didn't quote John Piper. So when God makes all things new, he makes us new spiritually and morally. He makes us new physically And then he makes a whole new creation so that our environment fits our perfected spirits and bodies to work for and serve him. Right? So the the new creation is from the inside out. You get a new heart and you want new things. And then your body, you get a new physical body. And then you get, there's the whole new universe so that in the new universe, you work for and serve him. And then here's a stanza from a poem by Isaac Watts. He was a... uh, 
Puritan theologian and pastor and really deep thinker, and he wrote poetry, which is lovely, and he wrote, this is one of his stanzas. Then shall I see and hear and know all I desired here below, and every power find sweet employ in that eternal world of joy. God has given you certain powers, things that you are good at in a specific way that no one else is good at. And you're not supposed to compare yourself to other people. You were made specifically with your powers the way God wanted you to be, to glorify God the way you should. And in heaven, you get to use that. It is a sweet employ to use you, your powers, the way God meant it for you to glorify him. Okay. So you get the point. We're supposed to image forth God by what we do through work, through art, and through individual enjoyment. So we image forth God substantively, relationally, and functionally. Just the image of God doesn't stop when you leave church. That's my point. You work to the glory of God the whole week. You do art to the glory of God the whole week. You enjoy things to the glory of the God the whole week. It's not just a church thing. Okay. So... Before I get into how this relates to the gospel, what does this have to do with Jesus dying on a cross? I want to bring it back to our theologians, Cornelius Van Til and Clementine. To be self-consciously Christian is to think about what it means to be the image of God substantively, relationally, and functionally. We need to self-consciously choose to think about being in a world of people who are the selims of God in their substance. We need to self-consciously think about being relational to the glory of God and self-consciously think about glorifying God in delivering pizza. Okay, here's the big point though. Actually, the whole, this whole sermon so far wasn't that important. This is the important part. So if you've been asleep, here we go. <laughs> this is the important part. The truth is, none of us image forth God the way we were supposed to. None of us treat others like they are the real selims of God. We all have degraded other people because we don't care about God. But one person did. One person always treated everyone like they were the image of God. Jesus, he never degraded. He would never think mean thoughts about you. Jesus would always forgive. Jesus would never lust. Jesus always treated people like they were really the image of God. None of us do, but he really did. He always treated us like we were the image of God. He would never steal or lie. He treated people with respect. He treated women with respect, which was weird for that culture, and people from other ethnicities and Samaritans and sick people and disabled people and really bad sinners. You didn't lose the image of God to Jesus. He always thought of you and acted towards you like you really were the Selim of God. And relationally, all of us have broken every relationship we've ever been in. None of us have been as fully relational as we should be. You were made to be relational and you aren't in every relationship you've ever been in. But Jesus was always fully relational, always fully self-giving and loving and forgiving with every person he ever met. He's the true image of God, not just because he is God, but in his life, he truly imaged forth God. And functionally, Jesus did everything to the glory of God. We don't. We treat this world like it's our glory. We work for our own glory. We treat things like it's the ultimate glory. We, we find love in this, these things. But Jesus always worked to the glory of God. Every table he ever made as a carpenter, he made to the glory of God. Every meal Jesus ever ate, he ate to the glory of God. 
Do you get this? The whole point is we are not the true image of God. We're meant to be, but he is. He really is. So the application is not just try harder. Try to, try to treat people better. Try to be more relational. Try to functionally be the image of God better. Yes, if you are in Christ, this is the tool to grow in righteousness. But the point is he's the image of God for us. You get into the new creation. God is going to recreate reality where we will again be who we were supposed to be. In the new heavens and the new earth, everyone will treat each other really human. No one's going to think bad thoughts about you. No one's going to gossip or lie. No one will be greedy in the new heavens and the new earth. No one will lust. Everyone will treat everyone like selims of God. There'll be perfect relationality. There'll be perfect functionality in the new heavens and the new earth. But to get there, you don't just try harder. You accept what the true image of God did on your behalf. You get the whole sermon is just about making you love Jesus more. He is the true image of God. So you're supposed to walk out of here, yes, thinking about how you can grow in these things, but ultimately saying, praise Jesus. He is the image of God. He is perfectly, substantively, functionally, and relationally the image of God. So the doctrine of the image of God is important for growing in righteousness, but it's ultimately to make us love Jesus. And that's it. So I'm going to pray. Lord, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for telling us what it means to be human. We want to think about everything as it relates to you, not just the parts of our life that we let you have. We want everything to be about you, including what it means to be human. And we, when we think about what it means to be human, we are forced to think about Jesus, the true human. And we can't wait to enter the new heavens and the new earth. Lord Jesus, come quickly. We want to enter the new heavens and the new earth, which can only come by accepting what you did for us. We can't get there by being more human. You are human on our behalf. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.